Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. All right, and we are live. I have with me today aboard Mighty Sparrow, Eli St. Amour. Is that it? Did I say that right? Yep, yep, you said that absolutely right. Awesome. It might be the first time anyone ever did. Hey, <laughs> congratulations to me. Now, can, what, what, is that, what does that last name mean? Because that, that's a really interesting last name. So Saint Amour is uh, it's the direct translation is uh, Saint of Love, and uh, it came from Saint Amour, France, where uh, way back uh, my uh, ancestors came over from Saint Amour, France, and so everybody who came from that town um, took the last name Saint Amour. So occasionally I'll meet people with uh, a similar similar name where it's kind of changed over the years. Uh, my one has a abbreviation, so it's St. Period Space. So that's always fun to try to register with agencies <laughs> yeah, and stuff. I, I could imagine little error codes yeah. coming up left, right, and center. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. Well, you've been down here at Ladies Island. You sailed in oh, it was about a week or two ago, and, uh, and yeah, basically joining the family. And so I want to find out as much as possible because I, I, what little I do know, it's sailor slash beekeeper slash future adventurer. And, uh, man, I just... It, it amazed me. So I guess I always like to start off. What what do you sail and what did you come down here on? So I sail a Catalina thirty, uh, tall rig. So it's only a thirty foot boat, but it's got a forty eight foot mast and one hundred and fifty percent Genoa. So um, a lot of nice sail area for the size of boat. And I was very fortunate when I bought it. Um, a lot of the previous owner, two owners ago, had set it up for racing. So the sails are are super nice and easy to handle. Um, and then the last owner was a friend of mine. He set it up as a live aboard slash day sailor. And then I'm kind of taking it to the next level of, of trying to make it to a cruising boat. Oh, nice. And, and uh, down below has a huge amount of room. I mean, I hear it a lot when people see this boat and they come down below and they're like, wow, it does. It looks a lot smaller from the outside, but yours definitely does. I mean, I was, I was amazed. I mean, well, that first night we had six or seven of us packed in there, and there's plenty of room. Yeah, yeah. It has almost a 12-foot beam, uh, so it's it's a lot of room. It's a lot of fun to hang out with people on the boat and uh, be able to really use it for more than just a place to sleep and a place to sail. I can I can really host and, and uh, have people over, which is nice. Well, and yeah, I mean, from, from literally – almost the first night you were here you were already hosting people <laughs> eli you i would definitely put you in the realm of you know the the sort of entertainer as you come into a marina and every marina needs that because it sort of brings people together it's it's very easy sometimes especially in the winter i think to have people sort of uh you know shrink back into their boats uh, when it's cold and and you know not get out there but you know, it's people like you that sort of bring everybody out and bring them together. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Uh, and that was one of the big things I was looking for when I set out on this journey uh, was really the people. It's, um, you know, sailing is, is awesome. I really, I really love sailing. But um, meeting other sailors and other travelers and, and just you meet the most interesting people at marinas um, and out on boats and working on boats and so that was something I was really looking for 
and uh, I was super happy when I found this place because it's just really awesome, nice people, um, super interesting people. Every time I'm working on a project, I can just you know walk from one end of the marina to the other, and I can I'll run into three people who've already done the project and can give yeah. me every all the advice about it. So little meet and greets here and there. I mean, it's it's never really a lonely place uh, when you're in a marina and. Like you said, most of the people that you meet, you, you don't see a lot of nine to five, you know, I'm, I'm working in a bank sort of people. It's people typically who have done that and then decided they wanted to go a different route. Uh, but you actually sort of are able to mix it up a little bit because when you go back, well, before I even get into that. So where where did you come from when you sailed down here? So I started in uh, Philadelphia. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and uh, moved to my boat there about three years ago, right after college. And that's right in the city, right? Or very close? Right to outside it? the city, yeah, near near the airport. Wow. Yeah, so it's um, I've been living there for a couple of years on the boat, kind of getting the boat comfortable to live on, figuring out you know heat, fresh water, and things that you kind of need to have a comfortable living space. Well, were you were you staying there in the winter time up there for those first three years? Yes, on yeah. the boat as well. So, so yeah, wow. I was on the boat year round. Um, now because I don't work during the winter, um, I was able to, or my, my beekeeping business, uh, I don't work on that during the winter. I can travel a little bit. So last year I was only there for about three days of, of, uh, February I was yeah. on the boat and then the rest I was traveling, but that's kind of in terms of living space, that's kind of my, my primary and only residence. Nice. Well, I, I've really enjoyed, you know, sort of just living afloat. There's there's that sort of freedom that you know that if you wanted to, you could head off pretty much anywhere you want to go. But at the same time, if you put the effort in, I've always found that you can make your boat really, really like a home. And, you know, it's I don't know, there's just something about it. You have to actually sort of put some effort into it, but it is you can. Uh, might as well have a welcome mat sitting on the dock sort of thing it, it does sort of transform into that I, the idea of of a boat just always being some boat that you take out on the water and sail and bring back i think changes for us liveaboards a lot yeah it's really different when it's it's your home and that's one of the big things i tell people when they're trying to figure out how to get into sailing and boating especially younger people is you know everybody's tells you like from the second you start talking about buying a boat everybody tells you oh it's the most expensive thing you'll ever buy boat stands for break out another thousand which is kind of true. a hole in the water you throw it, money a into. Hole, yep the, <laughs> the the most untrue one was the uh happiest day in a man's life is when he buys a boat and when he sells his boat right i've never met a sailor that believed that i met a lot of people who you know, never used their boat. <laughs> that, yeah, that yeah. believe that. But um, I yeah. know a lot that yeah shed a tear when they actually have to sell it for whatever reason. Yeah, so it's it's nice to have it as as your home, and it also kind of makes the whole thing work uh, financially too, because um, you know you're not paying rent somewhere else, so you can put that money into your boat, making your boat nice and a good place to live and hang out. You know, and why would you? If your boat is where you want to go on your day off, then why wouldn't it be where you want to spend all your time, you know? Right, right, exactly. Well, and, and what was it that got you, that gave you the bug? Did you have other boats before, or was it you just you just decided, all right, it's time, I'm, I'm moving on a boat, I'm going to shake things up? Yeah, so in um, it was something I kind of, you know, wanted to do as kind of a vague idea in 
uh, I guess high school is when I first started thinking about it. Probably when the Pirates of the Caribbean movies came out, it was like <laughs> yep. sailing is cool. I want to do this and um, and learned a little bit about it through the Sea Scouts, an incredible sailing education organization through the Boy Scouts, and um, ended up doing um, uh, apprenticeship on uh, Tall Ship Mystic Whaler and getting into the Tall Ship world nice. and really learning about that kind of sailing. Um, and it just very quickly became something that's like, I, I want to do this for, for a long time. And, uh, when it came time to figure out where I was going to live after college, it was, the boat was just really the clear option. I looked at, you know, converting a van or renting in a place, buying a house, whatever the case may be. And it just always came back to, you just can't beat boat life. It's, it's the best. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, when I, when I start thinking of things like mortgages and property taxes <laughs> and all that, I just start to, you know, I look right back to boats and I think, man, the life is just a little simpler when you're dealing with these in some ways. In other ways, it can, you know, it's not it's it's not very typical for a house to start sinking uh, when the bilge pump fails. True. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> so there's true. pros and cons. But that's that's absolutely crazy with the tall ships. Um, what was what was sort of one of the biggest adventures you had on any of those? Uh, well, definitely the the Great Chesapeake Bay Schooner Race um, is kind of the highlight of uh, the year. Um, basically, we all sail from Baltimore to Norfolk uh, nonstop um, using only sail power. So it's it's an overnight um, or two or three days, depending on whether the wind's coming from the right direction or not. How, how many ships would be in that? I believe it was about uh, twenty-five tall um, ships. Twenty-five tall ships, also. Oh man, yeah, that all must historic be schooners, um, and you know that's maybe three hundred sailors, and it's just a really, really awesome time. Uh, everybody's super into, um, you know, sailing and living that that kind of lifestyle, and it's it's a great way to get into sailing because you're with a crew of other people, so you can learn from other people. You're not kind of just diving right into being in charge of your own boat and uh you learn a lot on the on the tall ships it's a great great learning experience oh yeah well i mean the captains on those boats that's that's like a lifetime it takes to just get to that point and i mean that's i think if if you really had that that bug it would have it would be such an extraordinary life to lead where you know, you're you're basically starting out as just a deckhand on those boats and working your way constantly because there's so many different jobs. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, how many people were crewing on your boat? So the biggest, um, I I mostly specialize in in I sail schooner the smaller schooners a lot of times. So, um, but you know, ten or eleven people is on uh, Northwind, which I've been doing the race on most recently. She's a, a steel hulled schooner out of Gloucester, New Jersey. Uh, but then it goes all the way down to Summer Wind um, is, is one of the smaller tall ships in the race. Uh, she's a historic uh, Chinese junk rigged schooner. So really interesting sail design to, to sail. How big is that boat? I believe she's 48 feet. Oh, wow. Um, tiny little. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So it's a, a pretty small, small boat um, as tall ships go. Um, and on that boat, we had six people on for the race. But when we're just doing dockside stuff, it's just the captain and one other other person. And the way one of the things about schooners, the reason why they're uh, they can sail with a smaller crew than like you know a square rigged um, bark or something, is that um, you can you have the two masts 
And so instead of having a giant sloop where you have one huge mast and a huge boom and a huge gaff and you need tons of people just to raise that sail. Yeah, all the manpower. You can kind of raise this, the mainsail and then raise the foresail and kind of um, split that manpower. Uh, right, so right, right. So you get right. kind of double the power. Um, but, yeah, it's it's fun to sail with the crew. And some of these boats, you know, they might have 20, 30 people, uh, crew members um, on board. And wow. uh, climbing the masts and yeah. and it's nice to have a crew. It's nice to pull into a new port and already, you know, have ten friends with you or something. Right, so. right. Yeah. It's like a little family on board. I mean, you know, you're solo on your boat. Obviously I'm solo on this one. And there's something to be said for that, but when you do have a, a great team that are all sort of working towards that same goal of, of maintaining and then and then using the ship. That mm-hmm. is, it's it's a great feeling, especially when, you know, when everything's going right, the winds are perfect, she's fully loaded and just sailing, there's there's nothing better. And when you can celebrate that with other people, uh, besides just sitting there yourself and sort of smiling, <laughs> it's it's a good feeling. Yeah, and it's nice, too, because, you know, in my, in my business, I often work alone as well on the beehives, and that is something where like if i'm doing that all day on my own and then i'm living on the boat on my own it's kind of nice to get out and do something with a, a crew and other people and you know when you're trying to set up a bunch of sales it's really nice to to have stuff happening that you're not directly having to do every step of and i'm just now getting into the solo sailing with this voyage um and it's it's a whole different experience and there's there's definitely pros and cons to it but uh yeah, it's 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 interesting to see the contrast between soloing where like if I need to pull up the anchor, I need to run from the anchor and haul it up as much as I can, then run back to the um, the helm and uh, motor up towards the anchor. And I explained it to one of my friends who didn't uh, who, who didn't really uh, do much with boats. And I explained it as you're, it's kind of like driving an RV down the highway while trying to do a puzzle in the back of the <laughs> RV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, logistically, yeah. it can be a bit uh, dodgy at some points, but that's that's sort of part of it is trying to figure out what's going to work best and and how you have to modify whatever systems you have on the boat. And you know, last night we were looking at some of the the new tech that you're throwing on yours, which I'm sure will help out quite a bit. But it is, you know. I think one of the the real nice parts about solo sailing is you really do sort of become at one with the elements a little bit more in depth because there are less distractions around you. And, you know, it may take a few days of sailing sort of away from everything. But when you start to make that connection, I don't know, that's the time where you start to sniff out squalls and you know, little noises wake you up from a dead sleep uh, and you, you prevent some terrible problem from happening. It's, it's almost like the, you and the boat become one and then you're, you're just immersed in this ocean world. And I, I, I mean, I know it sounds a little flighty, but it's, it's, I think it can really only be done when you're by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely a different, different feeling. It's something where, um, like when I was on my own a lot, I saw dolphins pretty much every day, even in the ICW uh, inland. Um, I was seeing dolphins with surface right next to the boat and swim along. So that was kind of nice to not be to kind of be in touch with with the nature and the boat and the land and uh, not just um, kind of 
focused on other people because right, so much of right. our life we're just focused on other people. And I, when I had a crew member on board for the first month, I had a friend come with me. And that was super great to kind of get the feel for the boat, and especially because things broke literally every single day for the first 45 <laughs> days. Yeah. It was day 46 that I didn't break anything. The trial period, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that was awesome <laughs> to have an extra person at the helm because, you know, something could break, the boat could be – was taken on water the engine would break and i'd be trying to fix it and she could be driving the boat and that was really nice and then but uh it was also it's also nice to learn to to do it on my own and know that you know it's just a confidence building thing too that i you know the beginning of this of 2020 i really never taken my boat out on my own you know with nobody else before and I started training for it because I knew I'd, I'd have to be able to solo. Yeah. Even if, you know, everybody says they want to come sailing to the Caribbean or down south yeah, for the winter. Yeah, when it comes time to actually do it, it's, yeah. it's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, you know, whenever I'm asked by, you know, people who are, are thinking about, you know, setting sail by themselves and stuff, if I have any advice, and my first, my first advice always is, for your first few passages, make sure you have a second person on your boat. And I, I know it sounds sort of counterintuitive, like, well, I'm trying to learn how to solo sail, but what that does, you can you can still do everything on the boat, mm -hmm. but it gives you a little bit of an escape route in case something does go wrong or you do something sort of that's not actually going to work out if you were alone, but now all of a sudden you have somebody else. So you can make those mistakes. It gives you that buffer. And then you learn from it, sort it out, and then you know, then you can go on and, and actually go out by yourself with a whole lot more confidence because you've sort of worked out the systems. I mean, I screwed up so many things. I'm a true believer that you know, learning from my mistakes is the best way to learn. And my, my very first sail on this boat was with my father, and it was a 12-day or 14-day passage down from Florida to the BVI. And I learned a ton of stuff. If if I had to go through that all by myself, I'm I'm fairly confident I would have made it. But it would have been frightening at times. It would uh it would have been frustrating. I'm I'm sure I would have been questioning my plans to go try and go <laughs> around the world. Yeah. So I did a, a week long training sail that was exactly like that. Um, and I brought two very experienced crew members with me who were who were super terrific to to sail with. And I was learning from them and also kind of getting a feel for the boat on a on a longer voyage what what was the passage plan so we sailed uh it was an event called the troop cruise uh which is uh organized by the first city troop which is the army troop in uh philadelphia oh wow okay and yeah really interesting group of guys uh they were george washington's cavalry it was when they were founded and they uh oh, their charter says they um I think it was a fox hunting club back in the day that they were like, oh, George Washington doesn't have a cavalry. We'll go do it. We'll do it for free. And <laughs> and their charter was that they donate back their, their pay, and they still do. Um, and so just, yeah, terrific group of, of, of people. And, um, and we were doing this trip cruise together. Basically, we sailed from Philadelphia down to um, Rock Hall, uh, Maryland, and then there's a race where all the um, a bunch of them charter boats and they do the the race for the day and then there's big uh, crab dinner which is really nice and um, huge party every night and first night there was nine boats rafted up 
and uh, I'll, I'll, so one boat anchors and then another boat ties up to that. And they right, kinda, right. Um, this huge flotilla, like yeah. a floating party, basically. It was really, really <laughs> incredible. And I learned from a lot of really great sailors. And on the way back, I started having, I had one of my crew members on board and, and the engine broke down. So I was down below trying to fix the engine. She was driving the boat or trying to sail the boat upwind back to where we came from. And the whole day I was just thinking, wow, if I was on my own, you know, I don't know how I would possibly manage this. It would be impossible. And then uh, got back to port. She got uh, a ride back to Philadelphia. And the next day I, I thought I had fixed the engine, sailed out again. The engine broke down. I was literally in the exact same waters, <laughs> the exact same situation solo. And, and you know, I, I made it work. Um, it wasn't – it was not as easy to – kind of set a sail angle run down below and undo a hose clamp and then run back up and right. try to avoid the jibe and um but you kind of make it work and then once you go through that for you know it took about a week to get home and uh then you just have that that confidence and now when those same engine issues happen i can i can fix them in in much much faster because i've you know, done it before. Well, and that's that's one of the things you know i i've always thought that you can't really fear things breaking and and problems sort of coming out of the woodwork because every time a problem presents itself you're gonna you know the first time it's gonna take a while to figure out and fix it but once you've done that then that's just added to your arsenal of if that goes wrong again for whatever reason i can take care of it you know without a thought and the longer you're out and the more experience you get the bigger your arsenal to to fight all those issues and that basically turns into just more confidence to go further or take on, you know, bigger challenges out at sea. Absolutely. And there's two there's two really great books that I recommend for for kind of understanding the experience. And the great thing is they're both called Endurance. There's uh, Ernest Shackleton's Endurance. Oh, yeah. And that, you know, is a phenomenal story of, of leadership and endurance, basically. And then the other one is um about the the first astronaut to spend a full year in space in the international space station and oh, wow. he actually reads uh shackleton's book um while he's, while he's up, up there, there. <laughs> and it's super they're they're both super interesting and one of the big takeaways from that book is like you know nasa's got probably the largest uh, number of of the most experienced engineers and scientists and astronauts and still stuff breaks all day long and, and it's just about how can you fix it how can you make it easier to fix when you need to fix it and so that's kind of the mentality you know that i'm taking i'd rather have an engine that you know has broken and i fixed it and know how to fix it than an engine that hasn't broken yet because at some point it will and uh you got to know kind of how to fix it and the only way i really learned is through experience so yeah oh, yeah yeah and, and that's why you just can't fear it, because I've heard of a lot of people say, you know, oh, I'd like to go out there, but I don't really know much about engines and I don't know really much about this or that. And they let that become an impediment to going after it. And in reality, you don't have to know everything about every little aspect of the boat. You know, if you have a nice little reference guide or whatever, or have any imagination, you're going to figure out a way to fix it. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna start making a list of my takeaways for the trip, but it's basically a, uh, one of the things that I was telling someone the other day is when I started, I thought a twelve volt battery when it was half volts, half charge, I thought that was six volts, which is is not at all the case. Right, right. Um, <laughs> you know, I couldn't tell you the difference between gas and diesel. Um, I really have have learned a lot and just 
learning like the little things like you know washers are important you know if it had locking washers <laughs> on it when you spreading took it apart, the load yes <laughs> yeah you probably want yeah, locking yeah, washers yeah, on yeah. it when you put it back together and right, uh, right. you know that well, that kind of thing is is good to learn and yeah and it is i mean it, that and i think that's in a lot of ways it's not a bad part of of this whole like sailing experience it's it's a good part because you you take on these challenges and problems come up and I guess you could consider those failures, but at the same time you're going to overcome those and you're probably going to do it multiple times a day. And that brings with it a great feeling. You know, it, it's obviously a little scary at first. You know, I, I remember when I was skirting uh, hurricane Ophelia, uh, I ripped one of the winches off of the boom trying to put like the third reef in. And I'm just up there winching away. Everything's all good, just like normal. And then all of a sudden, pop, it explodes off the boom and almost falls in the water. And I'm thinking, you know, I had only been out at sea maybe two weeks on the trip. And I look at the boom and it's all the holes are super corroded. And my first thought was like, oh, my gosh, this boom is going to actually probably snap. I can't believe how corroded it is, all this sort of stuff. And then you know, the next day or well, I think it was probably like three or four days later when the seas finally calmed down and I was able to fix it. And and then after I fixed it, I knew it was actually installed correctly and it was much stronger. And I just felt great because I had sort of a, overcome this this obstacle. And I don't know, you, you would never have that feeling unless something actually goes terribly wrong <laughs> at the wrong moment. And and then you have to actually overcome it. So I don't know. I, I think sort of the lesson I always learned from that is to to not sit there and be afraid and let it impede what you're trying to do. You just got to go for it because you just have to sort of believe in yourself that you will be able to overcome any of that stuff right when it happens. But just don't let it stop you from actually going out and trying. Yeah, absolutely. Words and of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's one of the other things that I tell people who are trying to are get into boating is that uh, – the, the first thing that I tell them is, is it's okay to get a project boat. It's okay to get something that's, you know, a raw hull that you have to do everything to. Um, you don't wanna... in, in a lot of ways, I'd say it's even better. Yeah, because you know, I mean, if, if you're not very experienced, you don't know necessarily know that everything was done right, but you know how it was done, and then you can go back and do it over again, right, when, when yep. you realize that you did it wrong the first time. And that's the, the, the best way to learn, especially for things that aren't, you know, crucial safety things um and it's it's a different kind of sailing if you're if you're trying to do the the kind that you do with you know around the world solo type of sailing you you kind of have to make sure things are a higher caliber of of done correctly um but you know if people are starting out it's it kind of makes sense that um you can get a, a cheap uh boat that's in you know rough shape that you can fix up you can replace lines you can do things your way too because even if even if I bought a brand new boat, I would probably uh, want to go and change things and, and do them kind of my way because there's, there's a bunch of different ways that things can be done and, and people have different preferences about that. And then the second thing is that you can get a boat for free. Uh, I got yep, I that's true. gave away three boats this uh, before I left um, that were just in my marina uh, that I was living in. And I was able to get a hold of the owner and say, you know, do you want this boat? And they would try to, they'd want to sell it, but they boats are tough to sell and especially in Philly and they really weren't worth anything. So I had them sign it over to, were they pretty um, neglected? Some of them, uh, I mean, none of them were perfect. Um, 
but they are, you know, if you give them to people who are interested in fixing them up and making them nice. Uh, one boat we took something like 20 bags of trash off of the first day. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's a 36-foot it's catch that's, you know, sailed uh, down to Florida and the Bahamas, you know, a number of times. So it'll be a beautiful boat when it's done being fixed up. But if you're in, if you're willing to put the time and energy in, then you don't necessarily have to put in quite as much money as you would if you just want something that you can sail off the dock the day that you right, buy it. Right, right. Well, that I don't know if you've seen. There's a, a West Sail 32 that's on a, a mooring, you know, maybe a quarter mile down that way, mm-hmm. and. I, I always looked at it because it's, it's in really rough shape. It's been out there for years, but I a- ended up meeting the guy who owns it, and he just gave it away to somebody. Yeah, he, just, he was like, he got on there, and somebody had broken in and, and sort of trashed the place a little bit, but he just, after he saw that, he just decided if he wasn't going to use it, he might as well just give it away. And, you know, a West sale is the bones on these boats are fantastic. It could literally be completely burnt out in the middle, but you can always fix all the stuff inside it's it's the actual hull and the mast and everything like that those are good that boat's good to go you just need to make it your own yeah yeah absolutely and and so many of the systems you know you want to replace even if the you know if the wiring is is even if if it has wiring in it if it's old you know you might want to tear it out and replace it so if it's it doesn't really matter if it works or not if you're going to try to do that or right now I'm doing redoing a lot of the plumbing on my boat and you know, tearing out old nasty lines and replacing them with with new fresh hose lines and putting in filters and things and and that's something that like if I bought a boat, that's probably one of the first things I would do is is replace all the the plumbing. So if you're gonna replace it anyway, it doesn't really matter what kind of condition it was in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clean pipes is a, a nice thing, especially when you're trying to you know drink the water <laughs> that's in your tanks. I know when I when I finished uh, the big trip, I replaced a lot of the um, just the hoses that go from the tank to the sink because they were basically black with mold and bacteria and all that sort of stuff. So those are some of the fun parts uh, to, to be able to deal with. <laughs> yeah. Well, a kid, not to totally switch gears, but beekeeping. I, it just, I, that, that, that threw me for a curveball when, when we were first, when we first met and we were talking and stuff. And, and I think one of the interesting things you know, is there's there's a lot of people that I meet that that quit their job, sell their house, buy a boat and they just go for it and they figure out ways to to earn a living uh, along the way. But it seems like you've you've sort of um, skirted that where you've been able to have this business and then also for like what half the year and then be on the boat and sort of sail off to wherever for the other half. How, how does mm-hmm. that all work? Yeah, so uh, I'm very fortunate because the business that I'm in is, is seasonal. So, um, you know, in the spring I go in, I, I purchase uh, new hives of bees. They're called nucleuses. Um, and I, I put them out and uh, take care of them all year long, check the bees every, about every two weeks. I run about 53 hives right now on 30 different locations. And so that's up near Philadelphia? Yep, yep, all in and around Philadelphia. So what are those bees doing right now? So right now they are in the hive and eating honey, and that's and just I, chilling. Yep, yep. It's basically it's not quite hibernation, but it's um they just they hang out in the hive and they they eat honey in a big cluster and they keep that cluster about ninety six degrees with their body heat. 
Wow. So if I go up and open the hive when it's like zero degrees, it'll just freeze them out. So there's really right. nothing I can do, uh, especially being at so many different locations. And they're they're in those boxes? Mm-hmm. So each hive is a stack of boxes. Yeah. And it doesn't have – the box doesn't have a top or a bottom on the individual component boxes. And so they can move freely up and down the stack. And then there's a lid on top of the whole thing. Yeah. And there's a bottom board on the bottom that has a little entrance in it. And then there's each box has 10 frames in it. And they hang down like kind of like the pages. If you held the book by the spine, then the then the pages hung down. That's exactly that's what how it looks they, like. they hang down. And if the boxes were just empty, they would build that themselves. But I give them wooden frames to build in. And that way I can take apart their entire hive inspect every single cell see how the bees are doing see if there's any disease uh the new bees are being hatched there's eggs eggs in the hive are super important yeah because that means the queen's happy and healthy and you know sometimes i'll see the queen sometimes i just see that there's you know day old eggs and then i know the queen is doing her thing um and then i put the hive back together and um go on to the next one and do that every two weeks and then there's the varroa destructor mite um is a is a parasitic mite that attacks the bees and eats their fatty tissue um, in the larvae stages, and so that's really really bad for the bees. I have to treat them for that. Yeah. So there's a lot of work to do in the spring and summer and fall, and then after kind of the the end of October, whenever I get the bees closed up, I extract the honey. So I take those the frames out that have honey in them. I yeah. leave plenty for the bees to eat. Take the rest out to my barn. Uh, cut off the wax cappings and spin out the honey. It's like a, the spinner is like kind of like a giant washing machine without the water. Yeah, just like a, almost like a centrifuge. Yeah, the yeah. centrifugal force just pulls the honey out, and then I jar it, custom label. Um, I think I did twenty-seven different custom label skews wow. of honey. Because each client that I put bees on their property for, they get a custom, um, labeled jarred. Uh, like case of honey right and so that um kind of allows them to um you know have something to give away to their friends and and kind of um be able to have some kind of uh harvest from the hive and then after all that's done i get the boat i got the boat ready and uh and sailed this year the last couple years uh that i've been living on the boat I, i stayed in in philadelphia and but there's there's not really much you can do for bees in the middle of the winter. So. Right. Well, and it, yeah, I mean, it, it almost sounds like it sort of coincides with with the bees sort of going into their quasi hibernation and the end of the hurricane season, so that it's safe. You know, the bees are safe to be on their own, and then you're safe to go out and sail south. You know, down to where we are and basically the hurricane belt. Mm-hmm. Um, man, that's cra- how how long when when did you when did you first start doing the the bee stuff and, and how did you even get into that? So I started when I was twelve years old. I oh, went okay. on a uh, field trip to a historic site that also kept bees, and it was uh, Charles Thompson's uh, country estate. So he designed the seal for the United States that's on every dollar bill. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, so his country estate. That. Uh, is in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. It's called Harriton House. And I went there, and, and they had bees, um, learned about it, and just really liked it. And 
back then I was one of those kids that like just everything I saw I was like I want to do that you know the, right the next the week the next before day, I want to be a firefighter I yeah wanna, <laughs> which you do that I as well <laughs> yeah so it's and and that's the thing like you know we tell ourselves these these lies that you can't do it all and the reality is like you know you have a lot of time especially if you figure out how to make things not cost money and actually make you money like you can you you know you can have a boat and have a business and you know do these do these different things but beekeeping is really really good in that way because you don't need much other than time and the ability to learn about stuff like the actual cost of a startup hive is only a few hundred dollars and you can even that's for the boxes and what you get a queen and a bunch of yeah, so nowadays... They drone bees? No, they're not drones. So the drones are the oh, male they are bees. Um, they the, they don't really do much in the hive. They kind of hang out. And yeah. They fly out and try to mate with queens of other hives. And then the winter they get kicked out of the hive. And all the worker bees are the female bees. Uh, they do all the work in the hive. They have 18 different jobs through the course of their life. The, <laughs> there's an undertaker bee that just brings dead bees out of the hive. Right. And there's foragers that bring nectar and pollen and honey and that uh, is so nectar and pollen back to turn into honey and uh yeah so there's there's a lot of uh of different jobs they're really incredibly advanced creatures uh in the way that they are able to navigate and communicate and well they have like that whole social structure and and don't they they pretty much all get along i mean can can hives like sort of go to war with each other over territory so it's not so much over territory, but if a hive is weaker, another hive can occasionally come in and, and rob the honey that's left. Um, so if a hive is kind of weak and it's dying out, another hive will come in and, and try to take the honey. And that can happen between honey bee hives. That can happen. Wasps will sometimes come in and try to rob a hive. Um, but a strong, healthy hive will be able to, to defend yeah. them. So well, you and can that's have survival right of the other. fittest, really. So. Yeah, typically by the time it gets bad, you know, the hive is already dying out from something else, usually mites. Yeah. And and the robbing is, is not really the cause. A lot of people think it's the cause of the dying out because, you know, they go to their hive, it's super weak. They see wasps everywhere. They see bees from other hives coming in and taking the honey, and they think that's the cause. But really, it's more the effect. It's it's the fact that the bees were weak in the first place because yeah. of mites or, um, you know, a bad winter. Or they lost their queen or something like that. Right. Wow, God, that, that is so crazy! And you get to—you're sort of, in a way, you're you're part of that hive because you're their keeper, making sure you know they're okay, and you're their doctor, you're their mover, you're their protector. That's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, you know, after doing it for fifteen or sixteen years, it's something where it's really nice to to be able to have that kind of experience and go into a hive if it's super hot i often just don't wear a suit uh bee suit i uh just go in with shorts and a t-shirt um yeah how many times have you been stung oh more times than innumerable at all <laughs> at, one, at one time i think i lost count about 20 stings um, in one shot yeah oh, yeah man. they um and usually you know i it may have been more than that um but usually that's a bad day. I think I think I did a move this last year that I must have been stung at least thirty or forty times. Um, but there's different kinds of stings. So when I get stung, I'm not um, like I'm mostly immune to venom. So I'm not right. going to swell oh, up. Think. Like if you get stung, your you know your whole arm might swell up or your face or whatever. 
but I've been stung so many times that like it still hurts, but it's not going to give me as much of a venom load. And then I wear the bee suit most of the time. Um, and when they sting through the suit, so like the right now the wrists, uh, my wrists are a place I get stung a lot because the gloves for my suit aren't as good as the rest of the suit. Oh, that's like the weak point. Yeah. So I get stung in the wrist and, but when you're stung through a suit, you're not, the stinger doesn't go all the way in and, and give you a full venom load. So it's just little tiny half stings. Right. Well, because does their stinger come out? Yeah. So when a honeybee stings you, their stinger's barbed. Yeah. Um, the It's pretty much just the worker bees. Uh, the drones don't can't sting, and the queen can sting, and she can sting multiple times, but she doesn't sting to defend the hive. Right. So the only people who really ever get stung by a queen are um, like queen breeders who are handling queens a lot in there. Yeah. Um, and even then it's usually, it's usually the bee isn't even, you know, she's not trying to actually sting someone in defense. She's just, um, you know, trying to, to crawl away or whatever. And, um, but the workers, when they sting, they have a little barb on their stinger and it'll go in and the stinger gets stuck in you. And then as the bee flies away, it, it pulls. pulls out its, right. uh, the, the venom sac and the, uh, the bee's entrails. So the bee actually dies uh, pretty horribly when they sting. So they really don't want to sting. Yeah, it's it's like defensive just. Yeah, they'll only really sting to defend the hive. Right. And, uh, they, and then so you want to get that stinger out as quickly as possible um, and, and without squeezing it. So, you know, you can sometimes flick it out with a, they say in the scouts, they always said use a credit card. And oh, none, yeah. None like the, parts just like yeah. thunk, thunk. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Ugh, it's, I I the only real bee story I have that was of any interest I would think because it sort of involves boating. But I, I was in the British Virgin Islands, and where I worked at the Bitter End, it was about a mile to get to the ferry terminal, and you just go over. It's like a big bay, and I was driving my Boston Whaler across it, and as I'm going, I sort of see just something in the in the sky i didn't really recognize it didn't register what it was at first and then as it as i got closer i realized it was like a little swarm of bees maybe a few thousand of them not super tightly packed but all obviously in that one clump and as they approached they were only maybe 10 or 12 feet above the surface of the water and as they were coming and i crossed right past them i got stung like twice like Hmm. two of them came down and sort of attacked me and I can only imagine that that, that must have been, and I, I guess I'll, I should ask you, but would that have been like a hive moving with the queen or something? Yeah, so what that sounds like, um, if, they were, if they were honeybees, um, it sounds like that was a swarm, um, mm-hmm. which is when a hive fills up with honey and it's doing really well. Usually in Philly, it's usually in the early spring. Um, but the hives made it through the winter. They're super strong. And what the queen will do is she'll lay eggs for a new queen. So the queen can choose whether she lays a male or female egg. Um, and the, the male eggs are uh, unfertilized. They're only a haploid cell. Yeah. So they're actually a genetic clone of the queen, which is super interesting biologically. And we're not even <laughs> able to do that. These bees yeah. are so far advanced. But, uh, uh. yeah, so she lays a queen... Um, a, an egg in a queen cell and the workers will feed that egg royal jelly which is like a super honey um, kind of thing where it's it's um, turn makes her bigger and stronger and 
So once she's got new queens developing, she'll fly away with 60% of the workers. Oh, okay. Relocate. So then they'll start a new hive, and when those the new queen hatches, then then she'll kind of take over the, the old hive. Right. And that way the, the new hive goes in with... Um, you know, starts up with a new queen who can already has fertilized eggs. She can start laying eggs right away. Uh, and a big part of what I do in the spring is capturing those swarms. If I want to buy a nucleus, it's $185. So if I can catch a swarm oh, to start your own, uh, another one. Yeah. So if I catch a swarm, you know, that's almost $200 of bees right there. And they're pretty easy to catch. What you do is when that cluster, when that, that swarm lands, It'll basically look like a basketball on a tree. It'll just be a ton of uh, like yeah, a huge yeah. clump of bees. I think I've seen pictures of that. Yep, and you just shake that into a box or clip off the branch, and because um, the queen's like right in the middle of it all. Yeah, if you get the queen into the box, they'll smell her pheromones and they'll and all they'll walk into stay, the box. Right. So, so let me ask you this: just from a like, I just realized how if if when I was driving that boat, for whatever reason, the queen. You know, saw the yellow deck, or because I, I paint yellow decks on all my boats. I know that. <laughs> Believe it or not. Um, but if that queen would have like decided to come down and attach itself right onto the boat with the rest of them, they would have just followed suit, and I would have been in real trouble. Well, so yeah, they could definitely have done that. Typically, they probably wouldn't do something while it was moving. But it's possible. But it's possible. If oh it, my if gosh! It, if <laughs> like if you had just been drifting, you know, especially if they they want a, a break. Yeah. Um, what they'll do is usually a couple feet off the ground. Um, you know, ideally they do it like four feet off the ground. But when I try to catch them, they always seem to be, you know, 50 feet up in a bendy tree. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so if the queen lands and then basically that, that whole, you know, tornado of bees would come down on the boat and then fly into this big um, – land into this big clump and then there wouldn't be that many flying around oh right they'd all just be there but they're pretty swarms are pretty gentle um they they typically aren't stinging because there's no hive to protect so you know it's you can be stung by them occasionally yeah um but it's not like you know if you go up to an actual beehive and you open it up and you start you know working on the bees then they're more likely to be defensive right um so yeah, that's um, so yeah, that's incredible. So they, they're pretty. They can they can be pretty gentle when they. When well, they what what's your favorite part about working with bees? Um, it's nice to uh, when like you get that perfect day where the weather's you know not a hundred degrees in the suit and you're going through hives and it's it's going pretty well and it's it's great because it's like you speak the same language as the bees like. Um, it's kind of like if a dog comes up to you, you know if that dog's is is gonna you know try to bite you or trying to like just looking to be pet. Um, I'm I can do that with bees. Like you can tell by the way they're buzzing, the way they're moving, if they're trying to sting you, and it just it just never gets boring. I mean, there's um, you can see I saw a newbie ha being hatched. Um, you know, pretty much every day if you take the time to look in the cell and just being. Right, able yeah. to open up this world that most people never get to see, and uh, it's gonna be, be almost like a it, little yeah. bit of a god complex sometimes, where you're sort of like, you know, surveying your your little civilizations when you're looking at multiple hives and you sort of control them all. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, 
I don't know how much control I really have over them. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. it's um, or yeah, I, I shouldn't say you're providing for them. They're you know. Yeah, it's safe one haven. of those. It's it's one of those things where it's like um, you know, it's like tending a flock of sheep or, or like any other kind of farming. It's you know, you try to take care of them, and they try to hopefully hopefully they'll be able to take care of you and. Right. You know, no matter what you do, it never really seems to be enough to to get those bees to be, you know, as, as big or prosperous as you'd like. You know, sometimes you work on a hive all year and give it, you know, everything it needs and it uh, doesn't produce any honey or dies over the winter. And you just kind of have to start over with another hive. And sometimes you have a hive that you don't do anything to and it gets... You know, I got 150 pounds of honey out of one of my hives one year. Oh wow! Yeah, it was it was the most I've ever gotten, and it's the hive was taller than I was because you just keep on adding boxes until you're ready to harvest. Yeah. And it was on this really rickety uh, shed roof, and so it was physically too much weight for it. So we just kept on pulling boxes off and freezing the honey um, until we were ready to harvest. And yeah, it ended up being 150 pounds of honey. We didn't really do much to that hive. It just kind of got established and started doing its thing. So, you know, you try to do everything you can, but uh, you, it just depends on, uh, you know, the weather and, and what you're doing. And they always say, people, you know, will always say, like, wow, this is so exciting. Like, you know, you get to, the bees do all the work. You just, you know, start a beehive <laughs> and then you take no. the honey out of the hive. And it's like, <laughs> that's not really how that works. It's, it's right. a lot of, it's a lot of work. But Well, yeah. and so like with that 150 pounds of honey, how does that, how does that, you know, turn into revenue for you? So, um, in that case, I had two other beekeepers. Uh, it was kind of early on and I was, had two other beekeepers. I was kind of teaching and working on the hives with. So we split that honey three ways um which is not really how i do it much anymore um and then i sell the honey i jar it and label it and sell it to uh, my customers for you know twenty dollars a pound oh okay um, and that's that's higher than anyone else sells honey for like you can well, you can definitely cure. get and and one of the reasons that i do that is i basically ask all the other beekeepers what they're selling their honey for and i sell it for a little bit more and that's kind of the opposite of how pricing is supposed to work in you know a, a um, capitalist society, but my idea is that um, I don't want to undercut any other beekeeper. Um, right, right. I already have the customer base that that'll pay more for the honey. If people want, you know, cheap honey, there's there's definitely um, you know, like Chinese honey or something like that. It's really not all that great. Yeah, so there's a, a process called honey laundering, uh, which is kind of <laughs> funny because it sounds yeah, like I've honey seen, laundering. I've I've tunneled or I've gone down a couple of YouTube rabbit holes about yeah. the honey. They can you take know. rice syrup and basically make it taste and look something like what most people think honey tastes like. And uh, they sell it in, in uh, big box stores, and they'll import it to the U.S. and, and cut it with other honeys. And um, you end up with this really nasty, like, high-fructose corn syrup or rice yeah, syrup product. basically fake honey. Um, yeah, so so then they sell that for, for pretty cheap. And even real honey is kind of subsidized by the uh, the pollination industry. So when most beekeepers don't make a living from selling honey, they make a living from moving their bees around on trucks to almond orchards and, and peach orchards and all the different crops that need to be pollinated yeah. um, because they're only planting the one thing. They don't have wild bee populations that can pollinate that so they bring bees in on trucks and you can get some crops you get 250 times the yield 
um, or, or uh, 250% um, as much um, of a yield be when you have bees on the property because they need to every single almond is pollinated by a honeybee. It's about a third of everything we oh, eat is pollinated right. by yeah, honeybees. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it wraps into the, the big agriculture world when it comes. Yep. Ah. So then when you're, you know, you can make, a I think. tangled web. Yeah, it's it, and it goes into monocropping and pesticide use, and it just kind of becomes that, that whole empire. And, and it's it's a tricky mess that we're in because, you know, you if you plant all one thing, then you get super pests, and then you need to, uh, that just really like eating that that one tree and then you need to spray harsher chemicals and then you know you need to truck in bees and now you're spraying harsh chemicals near bees and, right um, yeah and when when just some good biodiversity would cure all of it yeah and a lot of people you know and i've i've uh, worked on organic farms and things and and um you know people are like why don't people just do it organic and i'm like well do you want to sit out in a field and squash bugs one at a time? Cause that's, if you're not spraying, that's often what you're doing. Yeah. And, um, basically impossible. Yeah. So, I mean, farmers don't spray pesticides just for the fun of it, but it's also not a, not a super sustainable system, but it produces a lot of food. So that's kind of what we need to do if we need to continue producing enough food to throw half of it away. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We could go on and on. Well, let me, I guess to just sort of wrap up the bee stuff, if, if there, if people were more interested in sort of learning about that, is there any documentaries or any books that you would recommend? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of different uh, resources. Um, every year, there's kind of new documentaries that come out, and I think that that is um, kind of good to stay on top of, you know, because it changes so often. So yeah, um, you know, the documentaries from from two years ago are talking about different issues than they're having now. Um, if people are interested in having bees and they're in the Philadelphia area, they can check out my website at elishoneybees.com. Nice. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, shameless uh, plug there. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll put a, uh, a link to that for sure. So yeah. uh, and uh, get, get you some more bee money. Yeah, the big <laughs> some thing, honey money. Yeah, the big <laughs> thing is is making um, is uh, you know if you're interested in, in starting to keep bees, you know, find a local beekeepers meeting. Most you know everywhere pretty much in the country has. Um, you know, some kind of a beekeeper club or beekeeping guild. Yeah. Um, and talk to other beekeepers and and just talk to as many people as you can and use as many different resources as possible. You know, there's not one um one size fits all book. Um, right. You know, the ABCs and XYZs of beekeeping is kind of like the the beekeeping bible. It's called, but ah. um, you know, it's it, there's so much new information out there. Yeah. Um, every single year for the new things that come up um, that you really have to use a combination of, you know, the old books. I use beekeeping books when I teach. Some of them are over 200 years old. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I use huh. I use like very um, early, uh, a lot of very early texts about um, from beekeeping um, and kind of tying in with the, the fact that I learned beekeeping at a historic site. You know, a lot of the founding fathers were beekeepers. Um, you know, in their, their country estates, it was kind of considered like a gentleman's profession a little bit. Well, um, and a perfect way to get some sugar and yep. add, you know, cause when, you know, when there aren't huge grocery stores just stocked shelf to shelf, you know, back then that would have been a major source of nutrition, glucose, flavoring, everything. Yeah. And this is a good climate for it because, you know, the maple syrup is another one where you can get sugar, 
um, but that's a little bit easier to do farther north. Um, and so, so beekeeping and getting that, getting that sugar sweetener that way is, is a lot easier, um, than, you know, trying to refine cane sugar and right, things like right. that. Or cracking open a, and open especially, a soda. <laughs> especially back before, you know, chemical agriculture yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. It was a lot more, um, there was a lot easier to keep bees, you know, alive and, and happy and healthy, so. Yeah, all the pollutants and I would think the pesticides must be just horrific for the bees but yeah they, they don't help <laughs> yeah. well, well that that's really interesting thanks for sharing all that that's that that is really cool to to sort of uh i guess wrap things up a little bit because we're already uh at an hour believe it or not um what does sort of do you have any any future goals or plans as far as the sailing or adventuring uh sort of aspect of of your life right now yeah i mean i think um the this this voyage that I'm doing, like I could definitely uh, see doing a, a longer version of this in the future. Uh, one thing I've been kind of kicking around is the idea of getting a uh, a horse drawn wagon and doing like a road trip across the country on by by like um, all by horsepower. Know. Yeah, yeah, just like a horse, you know, the one horsepower project or something. Whoa, um, that'd be pretty cool. And just just taking you know the slow. Like that kind of, I, I kind of like the slow pace of, of sailing. And I think that doing that on the roads, um, by horse drawn wagon would be, would be pretty cool. So I, I'll tell you what I have had for at least the last year, the strangest urge to run across, uh, the U S like from San Francisco to Boston or something. I don't know why I can only imagine it would be torture pretty much the entire time but it's it's so strange sometimes you get these ideas in your head yeah. and and unfortunately i have a bit of a reputation <laughs> of getting the idea and then actually ending up trying to carry it out but wow across to any any uh as far as sailing are there any uh spots that you'd like to be able to one day set sail and and have them appear over the horizon Oh yeah, I'd I'd love to um I'd love to make it down to you know the Bahamas, the Caribbean, um, and that's all within reach too. And yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's, um, you know, eventually I'd love to go. I, I'd kind of love to go everywhere, and the shortest route to go everywhere is go all the way around. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, but you know that that would be uh, I'd need a little more than six months to do that. That one takes a little time, and it, you know, to be honest uh compared to the trip that i did because i'm not stopping anywhere is actually far less expensive than mm -hmm. if you wanted to you know go through the panama canal south pacific indian ocean back around and do maybe a three to five year circumnavigation but at least with that you do have the opportunity to work uh mm -hmm. sort of along the way but and and you're also in, in a much more pleasant climate the whole time the, the southern ocean is it's not really a fun place. Yeah, it's I'm an amazing to, place, but it's yeah, that, yeah, it's a little <laughs> it's a little messed up. Well, okay, well that's cool, man. I I wish you the best of luck, and and I'm glad. How how long are you going to be here for? Um, I'll probably be here till about mid February, and then start working my way back up north to get the the bees started up in uh, March or April. Okay, so that's when it starts. Wow. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely be doing some uh, some projects and hopefully helping each other out and getting our boats all sorted. And yeah, it's it's great to see somebody taking off and and getting into it and enjoying sailing. I mean, every time I swing by Eli's boat, what what's the name of the boat? Zephyr. 
Ah, Zephyr. Yeah. Every time I go up to Zephyr, the he's got this really great uh, workbench that it's like a, a a sneaky one. So it's it's it can be folded up and then you just unlatch one thing, it folds down and everything's hanging and all this sort of stuff. But he's always working on something, tinkering, and it actually kicks me in the butt a little <laughs> when I'm a little lazy or just watching videos or something like that. And there's always a million projects I could be doing. But yeah. when I see you, I'm sort of like, oh, yeah, I guess I should probably do something, too. <laughs> I don't know. It's funny because I, whenever I come over to Mighty Sparrow, I'm always like, wow, I wish my boat was like this clean and organized <laughs> and there's not tools all over the floor. And yeah. Well, like I said, <laughs> though, I mean, I when I'm when I'm up in the boatyard in Maine, typically this boat is just tools and piles of projects and this and that. But I don't know. I've I've always and I, I think it comes from a lot of time working on other people's boats uh, before I started really doing my own sailing. And at the end of the day, if you were trying to present a real professional air, you'd clean up everything, the job site, so that, you know, the next day, if the, the owner came in, they'd see this, you know, everything's looking good instead of just an absolute mess of tools and shavings and all sort of stuff. So I've always... Even if I tear this boat apart during the day, by the time it's it's uh, cracking beer time, I typically will take like 10, 15 minutes just to like put stuff away. If you went around this boat with a white glove, you'd probably <laughs> have a lot of mold on your finger. So it's not actually yeah. technically clean, but it's just like put away. And, yeah. you know, some days it's better than others, but yeah, what can you do? That's a, that's a habit I'm trying to get into at the the cleanup after your projects yeah it, well and it, it's it's sometimes the last thing you want to do because you're just going to have to crack into all that same stuff the very next day and yeah i i guess it, it for me it just depends on the the depth of the project i'm going mm -hmm. into but yeah 100%. we'll have to see i'm hoping to break into some of these water pipes today and find where the air is coming from ah sounds fun <laughs> Well, thank you, Eli, again for coming on the podcast. Yeah, and uh, like I said, I'll throw the links in. Um, is there any other things you want to shout out? Um, you got your website. Uh, anything else? No, I think that's I think that's it. Thank you, though. Hopefully, soon comings. Maybe some uh, some YouTube action. I'd love to see some some of these hives on YouTube. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I think I might be starting a YouTube or this new uh, this new TikTok thing. Yeah, yeah, TikTok. I mean that that one's that one's taken off and it's growing. And you can do quick, easy videos with that one. Yeah. Um, YouTube, though, if you have more long form stuff, that'd probably be the place to go. But yeah, I, I feel yeah. like that'd be pretty interesting to to be able to almost share with your viewers a season of beekeeping, mm -hmm. where they get to watch and see the things growing and changing and all that. That'd be pretty cool, man. All you need is a GoPro. Absolutely. All right, Eli, have a good day. Thanks for listening. All right, thank you. You're at your old trusty boat. You call mighty sparrow. I'm in the city of Mardi Gras. Hey, everybody, just a quick note. If you enjoy this podcast, you can now support it. Just go to Podbean online. Search Sailing into Oblivion, and you can become one of my patrons. It would be hugely appreciated, and make sure that this podcast keeps going on and on. Thanks for listening.